the moist, khaki-colored, battery surface bubbled like an oozing saucer of lava. Tiny brown teardrops suspended in the flowery one cup of water, one egg white mixture, and poked through the surface. And just as I quickly slipped a 13-inch silicone spatula between the non-stick skillet and the most perfect chocolate chip pancake, the phone rang. It was my sister's voice pouring through the receiver, and she sounded frantic, in disarray, panicky. The details soon came through. Car accident. I'm okay. Can you hurry? I swiveled the burner from low past medium and high to the off position and hung up the phone. I swallowed the heated hot cake whole, burning my inner cheeks and gums as I did so. We hopped in the car and raced down to the intersection of Dawson and Pettit by the batting cages or village at the park. When we arrived there, the first thing I saw was a couple of smashed aluminum cans that used to be four-door sedans. Their airbags hung out limp like a dog's tongue on a hot day. Their noses were pressed together and Thank God it wasn't blood. It was merely radiator fluid that was bleeding out and snaking its way across the asphalt. The scene was swarming like ants with bystanders and paramedics and police officers who were dressed in highlighter green reflective vests. In the blue and red that was flashing deep in the night, one police officer was scribbling down eyewitness statements with his pen and pad, while another crossed in front of us, trailing behind a distance-measuring wheel. And then, amongst the gathering crowd, I spotted my sister. She was standing in front of a a chain-link fence, clutching her wrist. She looked worried and scared. I saw that her wrist was hurting. She was probably sore from the whiplash, from the punch of the airbag. But other than that, it appeared that her external injuries, that that was it, thankfully. And when she finally saw us, when she finally saw us, it was like, She was, the only way I can describe it is that it was like a big sigh of relief, hot air balloon size, because all the pressure, all the frustration, the worry, the fear, the anxiety that was built up, it was finally just released. Then came the tears and the hugs 
and picking up the personal items that would not be towed away with this crushed can of a car. I learned a a vivid lesson that night. I learned that presence means something incredibly important. That presence means something incredibly important. That our presence there with her, just because we showed up, it changed everything. It changed everything. She was alive, she was safe, and although everything was in wreckage, completely destroyed, totaled, everything was in wreckage, but our presence meant something incredibly important. The man Job had experienced quite a bit of wreckage. I mean, his entire life had become like the outcome of a head-on collision. Unknown to Job, he had somehow become the focal point in this strange wager between God and Satan. God allows Satan to wreak havoc in Job's life. And in round one, Satan completely destroys his life. He loses all of his wealth, and all his children, they tragically die. And then in round two, God allows Satan to afflict Job's physical body and Terrible sores and blisters bubble up, ooze and pus. By all means and measure, Job's life is completely destroyed. Everybody knows it. His wife knows it. She comes up to Job and says, Job, curse God and die. His friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they come to Job and they engage in an excellent display of grief counseling for seven days and seven nights, that is, until they open their mouths and share all their opinions about why they feel Job is suffering in this way. And it's by their opinions that they actually end up accusing Job as they're trying to rationalize and reason out the cause of this head-on collision of a life. They say things to Job like, what have you done? There must be some secret sin in your life that you're being punished for here. But Job all the while protests, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. He says things like in chapter 19, verse 6, but it is God who has wronged me, capturing me in his net. I cry out, help. But there is no one to answer me. I protest, but there is no justice. Verse 8 says, God has blocked my way so I cannot move. He has plunged my path into darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He has demolished me on every side and I am finished. He has uprooted my hope like a fallen tree. His fury burns against me. He counts me as an enemy. Then he goes on just a few verses later in verse 25 to say something like our memory verse. So I invite you to stand if you're able to stand as we read from the word of God today. We stand to revere its life-changing, transforming power. And this has been our memory verse for this series. Chapter 19, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. Even in the middle of all of this chaos and destruction, all of this calamity, he still has the nerve to say, 
I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And check out the next few verses here in 26 and 27. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Today is a day that we've all been waiting for. It's a day when Job finally encounters God. So let's pray for his guidance. Lord, we thank you for your presence. And we ask that we would understand what it means to be in your presence, to live in your presence, to be known by you and to know you. So open up our hearts, we pray. Open up our minds to receive your word and be changed. We pray this in the name that never fails, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So over the course of this sermon series, today as we wrap things up in the book of Job, I want to quickly recap what we've walked through over the course of this sermon series, Job learning to ride out the storm. Week one, we looked at how the struggle is real. We talked about in the second week how pain can be the greatest test of a marriage and how friends affect more than just your social life. We talked about how God is in control, how wisdom is found in God, and last week Jeff talked about how it's okay to question God. But here we are at the moment we've all been waiting for as Job encounters God and finally gets the answers to all of his questions. Why is Job suffering in this way? Here we go. Chapter 38, verse 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. In the whirlwind. Talk about having a bad hair day. I mean, whirlwind is probably poetic for an F5 tornado. I mean, good luck having a conversation with that. But the Lord speaks in verse 2, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Well, God, lately it's actually been Elihu, the guy he just won't shut up. And then before Elihu, it was me, it was Job. And before me, it was Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, my so-called friends who kept droning on and on and on. But God says to him in verse 3, Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Whoa, 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 hold up here. I thought this was the moment that we've all been waiting for where we would finally receive answers, God, not more questions. But Job here gets a lot of questions, a whole barrage of questions, two chapters chock full of them to start. And I've selected a few questions for our viewing pleasure here. This is not all of them by any stretch, but some in particular that I've selected. It starts like this in verse 4. God says to him, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much, who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? 
verse 8 says, Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb, and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, This far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. In verse 17, he asks, Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Verse 19, where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course, you know all this. For you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. That's God's sarcasm there. Verse 33, he continues, Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Verse 34, can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? And on into chapter 39, he continues, Have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Did you give it the ability to leap like a locust? Its majestic snorting is terrifying. And then in verses 26 and 27, is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle rises to the heights to make its nest? Good luck answering those. It's overwhelming hearing just maybe even a third of these questions. Where does light come from? If Job were trying to answer that, where does light come from? He, he might say like, well, uh, the sun? Okay, well, Job, where does the sun come from? Uh, well, the sun is made up of about... 70% hydrogen, about 28% helium, about 1.5% carbon and oxygen and nitrogen, and about 0.5% neon and iron and silicone and sulfur and magnesium. Okay, Job, sounds like you're pretty smart, or you looked it up on Google. Uh, but Job, uh, where do those elements come from? Uh, well... The universe. Okay, Joe, well, where does the universe come from? Your thoughts, Joe? Chapter 40, then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You're God's critic, but do you have the answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing. I have nothing more to say. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. It's the same pattern we saw. In chapter 38, will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? And on and on the questions go for two more chapters. And they get crazier 
as they talk about these strange creatures, behemoth and leviathan, these strange, mythological, dinosaur-like creatures of chaos and destruction. Here in chapters 38 through 41, God gives Job over 70 questions that he can't possibly even begin to answer. He can't. These who, what, when, where, why, how questions, they actually end up questioning Job's own intellect, his human ability, his wisdom, his experience. You know, all the things that we like to pride ourselves with. The things we put on our resumes. Yeah, I went to California Lutheran University and I earned a bachelor's of religion. And then I went to Fuller Theological Seminary and earned a master of theology and then a master of divinity. Okay, great. But where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job is left humbled in the presence of God. After this first round of questioning in chapter 38 and 39, he's left humbled. He says, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. I am not going to answer again because I just sound dumb. And what I've said before sounds dumb. But God continues to ask him questions in chapter 40 and 41, and Job actually does answer again. And in chapter 42, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. What does Job repent of here? What does he repent of? Well, perhaps his earlier convictions about God. Perhaps his earlier complaints about God and to God. I don't know why people say that Job never complained. I I don't understand why people say Job never complained because if we look at one of the, the texts that we read earlier in Job 19, 6 through 11, we get a whole list of complaints. In a nutshell, God has wronged me, blocked me, plunged my path into darkness, stripped me of my honor, demolished me, uprooted my hope, and his fury burns against me. I mean, if you were to say this to your wife, like, babe, You've wronged me, blocked me, plunged my path into darkness, stripped me of honor, demolished me, uprooted my hope, and your fury burns against me. You know what she'd say? She'd say, quit complaining. Stop. Seriously. You try that line. You have plunged my path into darkness. She'd say, just go do the dishes, all right? Well, Job certainly did complain, but you know what's amazing is that God can take it. And when we express this frustration, these complaints, these things to God, he takes them from complaints and bitter words, and he somehow turns them into praise. If we're on that right track, he turns our bitterness into praise, our mourning into dancing. 
Well, earlier in the book of Job, he hesitated to confront God in chapter 9, but gradually he became more and more confident. He demanded an audience with God. Yoo-hoo, God, look, me, you and I, we need a face-to-face, a sit-down, because I don't understand what's going on. I've been good, so why are these bad things happening to me, God? Well, Job is caught up in a world of retributive justice, where he believes that if you do good, then good things happen to you. And if you do bad, then bad things happen to you. But we all know that that's not the way the world works. Well, later, he spoke as almost God's equal, boasting that he would approach God like a prince, as if he, the man Job, could advise God on how to run the world. But everything radically shifts. Everything radically shifts as Job encounters God. His tune dramatically changes in the presence of God. As he encounters the living God, the creator God, the originator and upholder of all the entire cosmos, what changed? Did he get answers to all of his questions? Did he find out why he was struggling? In this section of scripture, I find it very striking what God did and didn't say. I find that what God didn't say is just as surprising as what he actually did say. Let's take a look at some of the things that God did and didn't say. In all of his questioning, in all the questioning we see in chapters 38 through 41, God did not mention Job's suffering. Not once did God mention Job's suffering. The whole book is about suffering. And God doesn't even mention it once. What? He gave no explanation of the problem of evil, and he did not defend himself against Job's charge of injustice. God's questioning response, how he comes to Job and just gives him all of these questions, it seems to just complicate this whole issue of solving the problem of pain and providing a rational explanation for suffering. But his presence resolves. God's presence resolves every deepest longing. God simply revealed himself to Job to a greater degree, and it changed everything. But Job never got answers to the questions. That's right. He never got the answers to the questions. He got something more. He got the presence of God. And perhaps in the presence of God, he is so overwhelmed, completely in awe, where he realizes my questions and the answers I seek They may not really matter after all. It's what he seems to come to in chapter 42, verse 2. He says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. Verse 5, he says, I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I, I said. In other words, I had put you in a box, God, and I thought that this is the way that you operate I see now you are not contained by a box. Job's relationship with God here, it seems to have deepened over this experience in the presence of God. And here he seems to become wiser as a result. Job actually becomes healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, not so much. God gives them the smackdown. Basically tells them, you guys were dead wrong. You had no idea what you were talking about. You sounded maybe reasonable or rational, but the things you said about me, they weren't true. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way that I, God, work. They get the smack down. They get told to go and sacrifice and then head to Job, the guy you've been pestering all this time, and he's going to pray for you. In verse 10 of chapter 42, it says, When Job prayed for his friends... The Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep. 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, the aunt of all syrup. (laughs) Your translation doesn't say that? The second, Keziah, and the third, Karen Haputch. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. It says nothing about the men. I mean, they they were like so-so. They were like A-OK. But the women, they were lovely. And their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died, an old man who had lived a long, full life. And that's the way the book of Job ends. Kind of, kind of bittersweet, kind of nice. But we learn a lot of different things from the book of Job. Three things in particular that the book of Job teaches us are the following. That no easy answer exists to the problem of suffering. All the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they keep trying to provide a reasonable, rational understanding for why is there suffering. And I don't mean like, like a car accident, and that's just human error because someone forgot to hit the brakes or someone was uh, not paying attention. That's human error. We're not talking necessarily about that. We're talking about like suffering evil in general. Like, God is neither absent nor silent. He speaks. He's alive. He's not on coffee break. He's not detached. He's involved. He didn't create the world and step back and disappear and let it just crumble into chaos and destruction. God speaks. He is not absent. He is involved. His presence is here. And we learn that his presence resolves every deepest longing. Every deepest longing. That his presence changes everything. That the presence of God, it reminds us that he is God and God alone. The presence of God, it cuts through all the masks, the facades, the shams that we put up, and it reveals who we truly are. Not what our Facebook says, not what our Twitter says, not what our Instagram filters say about us. It cuts through all of that and reveals who we truly are. 
the presence of God. It gives us a confidence, a hope, a peace, a love, a joy that we could never muster, we could never produce on our own. In the presence of God, it ensures us that we are not. We never have been and never will be alone. The presence of God is like a warm blanket. And now that may sound like one of the dumbest things I've ever said. But how else can I describe this, this overwhelming comfort and warmth and security? It's like a hot bath that you sink into in the warm water. It penetrates into your skin and runs like fire through your veins. It's like a voice that speaks, but it doesn't sound like a voice, and it doesn't sound like speech, but it tells me all the same. You are safe, and you are loved. And when we experience the presence of God, we are completely blown away, where we step back and realize, wow, the presence of God is here here, right now in this place, that the Spirit of God is here and it's thick. I want to welcome the worship band back up as we wrap things up today. It was in my uh, senior year of undergraduate study at California Lutheran University that I had an independent study course, a one-on-one -on -one with a brilliant Old Testament scholar and a dear friend, Dr. Joseph Everson. And every Friday, we would meet in his office, and he would pop a tablet of Alka-Seltzer into a glass cup of water, and it would fizz and bubble. And as he did so, he'd prop up his feet on a chair beside me, and rest his head in his hands and lean back. He'd close his eyes and he'd ask me, so what'd you learn? All week long, I had been reading and processing through some of the greatest Old Testament scholars of all time, and I had prepared a lot of different stuff that we would talk about. And I would blabber on about uh, social justice issues of the ancient Near East or Day of the Lord theology, and by the end of our conversation, the table beside me would be littered with open books. And our conversation would have gone from talking about Old Testament prophetic figures to conversations about friendship and love and life and family and politics and church and God. And I really cherished that time together. I cherish that time because it felt less like studying the disciplines of Old Testament and more like discipleship. The two actually became one. What I cherish most is the conversation that we had that took me years to kind of just process and figure out what he was actually talking about. But it was about the presence of God. And he told me, he said, Jeremy, where there is peace, Wherever there is peace, that is the presence of God. Where there is hope, that's the presence of God. Where there is joy, that's the presence of God. 
where there is truth and beauty and goodness, that's the presence of God. And it took me years to, to process through this and, and mull over it and think about it. And I realized that I need to be thankful for the presence of God. The presence of God that I probably miss out on all the time. That I'm too distracted or too busy. I'm not focused on seeing the presence of God right there in front of me. I must be thankful for the presence of God because without the presence of God, our lives would be a living hell. Quite literally, our lives would be a living hell. Absent of joy, of love, of peace, of truth, of beauty, of goodness. Because all those things, they come from God. All those things find their origination in God. Love, joy, truth, beauty, justice, goodness. All of that comes from God. So void of that is hell. And our lives would be a living hell. And how many times have I walked through my day where I just don't even see God right in front of my face? It doesn't matter if, if you're Buddhist. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or Catholic or whatever Mormon you might be. If you're experiencing love, you're experiencing the presence of God. If you're experiencing peace, you're experiencing the peace that comes from God. And I'm not saying that all roads lead to heaven or anything like that. I'm saying all, all we know is that the greatest expression of the presence of God is in Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave his life as a ransom for many. God came to save, and in him we have the greatest expression of the presence of God. And yeah, we see snapshots of it. My Jewish friends, they see snapshots of the love of God, but its fullness is in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me. There's salvation in no other name. This is what it says about him, the greatest expression of the presence of God in John chapter one. In the beginning, the word, and that's talking about Jesus. The word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 10 says, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. I pray that we would make a home for Jesus in our hearts. That he has come and dwelt among us and his presence is here right now. 
So I want to invite you to open up your hearts to experience more of the presence of God, to experience more of what Jesus did on the cross for us and how he was raised from the dead. That God's answers to the struggles of the world, the solution, the cure, is God and what he did on the cross for us and how he rose from the grave defeating death once and for all. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to experience more of you. Forgive us for being too self-consumed and too busy maybe, too distracted maybe, but God, we ask for forgiveness and we want to repent of that. We want to see you alive in our lives. We want to see you working. And Lord, we've been blind to it, but Lord, we realize that you are alive and you are not bound. So break open the molds that we have tried to put you in. I pray, Jesus, you would make your home in our hearts. And if someone in here today needs that for the very first time, they would pray, Jesus, come into my heart. Because I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. And you rose from the grave victoriously. So come into my heart. Become my king. May I follow you all the days of my life. And Holy Spirit, lead me into the places that I need to go where the presence of God be so heavy and thick before my face and in my life. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you.